0: I don't know that anybody's natural at anything. If, if you're natural at anything, it's only because maybe you could learn. I mean, I think I'm coachable. I think I learn. I'm interested in learning. I'm very coachable.
1: You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to the Hawk
2: Talk. I'm here today with Chris Voss. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So taking it back as a two, three-year-old, were you like negotiating nap times with your parents, like immediately <laughs> do how to like work the system? Take me way back. Where where were you born? Where are you from?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a small town boy from Iowa, Midwestern blue collar family. Father was an entrepreneur, uh-huh. pretty much sole proprietor. You know, he had a secretary and a helper. A uh, very blue collar business delivered gas and fuel oil products.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Fixed furnaces. Got it. The business initially I can remember, you know, eleven o'clock at night in the middle of winter, my dad go out to fix somebody's furnace because they didn't have any heat in their house.
2: Wow. You
0: know, my mom initially was a stay at home mom, but then as we grew up, you know, she's my dad got into the convenience store business, convenience stores and gas stations. So my mom got involved and she started helping that. So
2: he owned them? He owned convenience stores and gas stations? Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Started uh, you know, running his own operation. Initially, he was supplying the gas stations. And then, you know, the bosses, uh, we look at what somebody else is doing. And, and we, you know, we go like, yeah, I could figure that out. It can't be that hard.
2: <laughs> Love it. You have siblings too?
0: Yeah, I got one older sister and two younger. So there were four of us.
2: Nice. Awesome. And so tell me about the upbringing. You got an entrepreneurial dad, stay-at-home mom, then helped with the family business. Did they put you to work? Were they encouraging you to get out there and do your own thing? How how was that as a kid? Yeah, no, you
0: know, uh, my dad thought he's providing room and board. (laughs) We might as well pitch in and help. So started working for my father. We all did. Mm-hmm. Kind of as far back as I can remember, you know, my dad was very much, a, very, very much a figured-out guy. Like, if he had a task that he needed to figure out, then his attitude was, "You should be able to figure it out." Also, you know, my son, I used to send my son back to Iowa every summer. To initially, for two weeks, and he'd, then as years went by, he'd stay, you know, good four weeks. My son grew up a Jersey guy and kind of a interesting combination of New Jersey and Iowa. <laughs> But and and he, he goes back there every year for this annual tractor celebration and they like to call him Metro Jethro. So he <laughs> my son Brandon, the president of the company, interesting cat in and of himself. Awesome. But we've always joked that work, you know, working for my father, a man who would never ask you to do anything he wouldn't do himself, and there wasn't anything he wouldn't do himself. Like if it didn't matter what it was. If if it needed to get done, it didn't matter how ugly, how dirty it was, you did it. He did it. And we actually had a couple people when I was in high school, you know, a couple people worked for my dad that was like, you know, this work is too hard or, you know, this work is beneath me. And, you know, a guy who'll do something himself, if you tell him this is beneath me, then you're not going to last because yeah. honest work is honest work. And that's kind of how I grew up.
2: Got it. And, and growing up, were you really focused on helping business going through school? Were you an athlete? Were you into other things as well?
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know that I ever really thought about it, helping a business. It was working for dad. It was, you know, it was pitching in, it was, it was expected, you know, it was family operation. My father encouraged some sports, discouraged others. You know, my father played football himself in high school. So, you know, football and basketball, the, the traditionals during the year sports were cool, regardless of what I wanted to do. I played football and basketball.
2: You, I do did remember. You have, did you have other sports you wanted to do other than
0: football? Well, yeah, there there were. You know, the summertime sports like I can remember I uh, one year I decided I I wanted to play golf. I wanted to be on a golf team. Now my father liked to play golf and he let me participate in as a youngster and Saturdays in a golf league and I could play golf. But as a sport, no, nah, it was it was it was a no-go and It was funny because the golf coach was, the head football coach, a revered guy and a good friend of my father's. And when he found out I wanted to play golf and my dad was against it, he's like, yeah, I'll talk to your dad. Don't worry, I'll work it out. And uh, no, that negotiation didn't go anywhere.
2: So do you think some of the negotiating side was, do you think you got a little bit of that as a kid, like arguing with your dad about this stuff or negotiating or was it, where did you start? Do you think you started getting that knack for that side of things?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I developed an interest in it. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody's natural at anything. If, if you're natural at anything, it's only, it's only because maybe you could learn. I mean, I think I'm coachable. I think I learn. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in learning. I'm very coachable. A- Adam Grant wrote a book called uh, Originals, yep. and he talked about that originals have a high degree of a trait that's known as openness. And, you know, there's a quick down and dirty test at the very beginning of Adam Grant's book about whether or not you can tell how open, when you are. And I sort of, you know, I got a, a, basically a B plus on a test. Yeah. I think I'm very coachable. And, you know, that was the environment that I grew up in, uh, which was be coachable, figure it out. Yeah, And then negotiation, any, anything else. Uh, Daniel Kaur wrote a book called The Talent Code that says nothing is natural. Now, yeah, it's natural if you're seven feet tall. But, you know, there are more gifted athletes, more physically gifted basketball players than Michael Jordan was he worked at it yep. you know he had a, he had a work ethic he and as a matter of fact now we're talking about it he always prided himself on being very coachable yeah you know hence the reason why he did so well at North Carolina see the North Carolina North Carolina State Dean Smith yeah they wanted coachable players yep. so yeah he worked hard and he was coachable I mean that, those those are kind of the two elements and then yep. you find something that interests you and Coyle says that the, the prodigies, the naturals, they just got interested before anybody else realized that they were interested. And they were substantially down the route of the 10,000 hours before anybody noticed yep. that, uh, that they loved it.
2: Which you just nailed my question. That's why I'm asking. So I'm curious, where did the 10,000 hours start for you, do you think, on the negotiating side?
0: You know, it actually really started, there were seeds that were planted that I didn't realize that were planted. When I was a cop in Kansas City, Missouri, a bunch of the detectives got kicked out of the detective bureau. They had a dispute with the police department over whether or not being a detective was a promotion. And one of their contentions was, well, it must be a promotion because once we go to the detective bureau, we we, we stay. Nobody ever comes out. And the police department said, oh, well, we'll fix that and kicked half of them back out into uniform. Wow. So bad for them, good for guys like me, because suddenly a lot of really seasoned people who are good at talking to people are in a car next year. And I can remember this one guy came out, super low key dude. I was, you know, sort of an adrenaline junkie, young cop at the time, arrest bad guys, take control, be very commanding. And this guy was really soft spoken and would get results faster than I ever did. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, wow, there's something to this. Mm -hmm. And I remembered it. And then finally, I go through my bureau time and I'm on the SWAT team. And I decide to take a run at the hostage negotiation team. And after I got trained there, and I saw a lot of the same attributes that this guy had. So, you know, that's kind of how that all, a lot of that started.
2: Uh, Got it. And so taking a step back, you go through high school. In high school, did you work other jobs or were you working with your family mostly,
0: predominantly my family. I, you know, I took a, a couple times. You know, one of the gas stations that uh, my dad gave supplies to. You know, they hired me on to work some pumping gas there for a while, and I I did that some. That was that was principally my high school days.
2: And then did you go right into police academy, or did you go to college? What was next after high school? Now I went to college. I mean,
0: my dad wanted all of his kids to have a college degree. You know, the the unspoken deal was I'll foot the bill for four years of college. If you don't get out in four years, that's your problem. But, you know, you got you got, you got got four years to get a degree. We'll talk about where you want to go. I ended up, I followed my older sister at Iowa State University. You know, I always looked up to my older sister and it was a combination of a larger, bigger environment and far enough away from home that my father wouldn't expect me to work for him on the weekends. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and did your father go to college? Yeah, my dad, you know, my dad
0: joined the Marines at age 17. And I think if you joined at the Marines the Marines at age 17, you were probably a handful for both your high school and for your parents. Yeah. Now, that's not absolutely guaranteed, but you probably were. And my father and his older brother, 17 and 19, they joined the Marines at a young age, Korean wartime. My dad was young enough. They never, they, they never sent him to Korea. He didn't see combat, but he was an MP on the West Coast. Uh-huh. he gets out and then he goes to college. He probably went on the GI bill. I don't know. Yeah. But he, yeah, he, he got a college degree and met my mom who settled him down <laughs> and you know, then he became a businessman.
2: Got it. Awesome. And so go to college. Did you, what did you study? What did you think you wanted to do at that point?
0: Well, when I went to college, I always knew I wanted to be in law enforcement. I, you know, you- I got, I got the bug when I was about 16.
2: Where'd that come um, from?
0: Uh, You know, I saw a movie that inspired me, and I realized the title of the movie is kind of cheesy, but it was the Super Cops. It was about true story of two New York City cops that were wildly creative and innovative, and they were mavericks. You know, they they really sort of didn't follow commands and instructions, but they put a lot of bad guys in jail. And I was really impressed by three things, how much fun they had doing their job, how much... Creativity they employed, how much good they did, and I guess four things: how much the community loved them. They were in a, they worked in an extremely tough neighborhood in New York City, but like all neighborhoods, even the tough neighborhoods are mostly good people, and the good people in those tough neighborhoods loved them. I was really impressed by all of that, so it inspired me to go into
2: law enforcement. Got it. And so, what were you studying? Another grad to help with that. Well when I, when I first
0: when I first started, you know I, I got in as an engineer you know everybody Iowa State's an engineering school and everybody had aspirations for me to be an engineer and, and then I got there and I, did, I knew I was going to go to law enforcement so I switched to sociology but then you know even then I realized if I changed my mind, sociology as a safety net might be limited. so I switched and I got a business degree. I ended up with a, a business degree from Iowa State.
2: Got it. Keep your options open. Did the same thing. <laughs> and so, did you come right out and join the academy? What What was next?
0: Yeah, you know, straight to Kansas City while I was still in college, and uh, my senior year, went down and uh, put in my application for KCMOPD. You know, they they paid a premium for college graduates, but it wasn't a requisite. You know, prerequisite. You could you could get in with a high school degree. Mm-hmm. So, but they did give preference for college graduates. So, okay. I joined initially. You know, they told me when i not hiring, it was actually fiscal year issues. So about two months after I graduated, uh, I ended up getting hired because their fiscal year turned.
2: And were your parents super supportive? Were they resistant? Because Yeah, you
0: know, my dad was a little reluctant. He, you know, uh, he paid for a college degree and I went out and I got a job that didn't require a college degree. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were tolerant, supportive. Okay you know, my first two years there. And and then my father, after two years, he realized that I was probably going to stay in law enforcement. So he wanted to get me interested in federal law enforcement. And so he, he saw that as a step up. That's not necessarily true, but that's the way he saw it. Yeah. So he introduced me to a buddy of his that was with the secret service. And I remember meeting that guy and he said, you know, I have traveled all over the world with the secret service. And I thought, really you know i i I barely been across the mississippi river all over the world and get paid at the same time that sounds cool yeah so as uh, as as luck would have it the serendipity the universe the secret service was not hiring the fbi was i didn't know one federal agency from another so i thought you know let's see what the what the fbi has and and they
2: hired me and that was two years in you said
0: i was about two years on the job when i applied and I was just short of three years on the street when the Bureau
2: hired me. Got it. And you said while you're on the on the police side, you did, ended up on SWAT too? I was slated to go to the SWAT
0: team. It was kind of an interesting dilemma. And again, you know, the why, the U-turns, the forks in the road, you know, a lot of times you don't see it. The Bureau hired me on October sixteenth. I was scheduled to be eligible to get transferred to the SWAT team on October 31st, mm-hmm. and I probably would have gone then or shortly thereafter. The bureau would have delayed simply a month. I never would have left Kansas City.
2: Wow, that's a, yeah. Because once you joined, you wouldn't you would have wanted to see that through too, correct?
0: Yeah, you know, SWAT team—that's a lot of fun. I would, you know, I'd I'd been actually sitting on the on the bench for eight months. Uh, waiting to go to the SWAT team I participated in a selection about eight months earlier finished number one on the selection process but I didn't have the sufficient amount of time in on the street for them to allow a transfer And, and you know I just participated in a selection nobody thought I would do that well they thought it would be a good experience for me to learn yeah and when I was number one, you know, uh, one of the lieutenant colonels in charge of administration said, you know, I, I don't care who this guy is, got to have three years before you get transferred. So he held up my transfer.
2: Got it. And so did you stay in Kansas City with the FBI or did you transfer to somewhere? You know,
0: the bureau had a policy at the time to uproot you from home. Got it. When you become an FBI agent, you really, it's a new identity. You really got to start over and they don't do it anymore this way because it's expensive. Yeah. But and to make it easier for you, they uprooted you from home and you start over in a brand new city, small to middle-sized environment. So, you know, the, the pace is, it's not New York City. It's not moving as fast as New York. Yeah. And you get some time to get used to being an FBI agent. And so they uprooted me from Kansas City and sent me to Pittsburgh. Got it.
2: And were you
0: still excited landing in Pittsburgh? Well, I would, I've always loved the new challenge. Like um, okay. I, I found out that I got a bit of a gypsy, gypsy in me, you know, in total. I've lived in seven, seven cities okay. since I graduated college. I mean, actually lived, taking up legal res- residence in seven different uh, cities. Wow. I love going to new places. I enjoy
2: yeah. it a lot. Got it. And so tell me about the first few months at the Bureau, like ju- jumping in there. Was it just exciting and fun and learning or did you, like, ha- how was it?
0: Yeah, you know it was good. I mean, they, they they try to they try to start you out easy. You got it. You know, it's it sounds crazy, but you kind of got to get used to holding up your credentials and saying that you're an FBI agent. And ideally, you, the first time you don't do that is there isn't a Hell's Angel on the other side of the table. Yeah. So uh, a lot of places they will start you out actually doing background investigations on applicants. Yeah. For either the FBI or you do a lot of cabinet-level positions, a lot of White House security clearances, stuff like that. Get you use in small stakes practice for high stakes results, yeah. which is a theory that we've adopted in a Black Swan group as part of the Black Swan method. So the Bureau gets you some small stakes practice, you know, handing, uh, showing your credentials to somebody because you're looking for an employment file on a, an applicant to the FBI. Yeah. So it starts out it starts out fairly easy. And then after I'd been there for about six months, I got transferred to surveillance.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Learned about it, following people around.
2: Got it. So you're doing straight out of a movie, sitting in the van outside of a mafia boss's diner, that kind of thing? <laughs>
0: actually, you know, that actually was the case. There was at the time, one of the very active but smaller organized crime families, not one of the five families out of New York. Mm-hmm. There was an active and powerful organized crime family in the Pittsburgh area. And there was a nightclub outside of town where these guys love to meet for breakfast. And we would go and we would, you know, take pictures of who was coming in and out. And I was, I'm an innovative guy. I, I saw, you know, there's a special camera set up that I'd seen it, at the Academy Quantico. And so they, they put together a special location for me to be in across the street, to take pictures with this high speed lens. Yeah. And as it turned out, I took pictures of a guy that the last photos of a guy that disappeared, who had gone, fallen out of good graces. Yeah. And those photos ended up being a part of a, a very large prosecution that came down two years later. And I was just trying to be innovative, you know, be yeah. creative.
2: Yeah. And I
0: took some critical pictures because, you know, I wanted to think of interesting things to do.
2: Yeah. I mean you're you're stuck there surveillancing. You would think that you'd want to actually do something about it. <laughs> yeah, awesome.
0: you know, surveillance is about seven and a half hours of sitting still and about twenty minutes of scrambling to keep up with somebody without letting them see you.
2: I've always wondered because again, you see it in movies, most people don't hear about it in real life. Like, do you just drink a ton of caffeine to stay awake? Like how do you sit there for seven and a half hours? And then if you drink a ton of caffeine, how do you sit still? Like, how did you balance that? Like just sitting for seven and a half hours? Did you do other things?
0: Yeah, well, the guy who's watching specifically the either the door or the person, and usually it's a door, that's called the the eye, the primary eye. And you're only gonna take the eye for an hour at a time. Otherwise you're gonna, you know, you're gonna fall dead asleep and you're not gonna do anybody good. Actually it's hard to stay awake for an hour as it is. Yeah. And then when you're off the eye, you know, you, you get you get out of your car, you move around, you read a book. Yeah, you do gotta do something to keep your mind active, or otherwise, you know, your your brain turns to mush.
2: Makes sense. And is it usually two of you alternating or
0: No, no, no. As a matter of fact, it's extremely difficult to do a surveillance with any less than three people. And three three people, you gotta be good. I mean, you gotta be good. Yeah. Ideally, you got about seven out there.
2: Got it. Wow. Okay. And so, how long were you in surveillance? How long did you stick with that?
0: Yeah, I did surveillance for about a little over a year in Pittsburgh, Uh and then uh, when I got sent to New York, they put me on a surveillance team for the Terrorist Task Force. Come on. And, and you I, what
2: you do with this, Give
0: or take. This was 1986 okay. when I got sent to New York.
2: Yeah.
0: And now that was a different that was a different ballgame. Surveillance in New York. We got out on foot. Terrorist surveillance in New York. Yeah. You had to be prepared to be in any neighborhood in New York, and that means the toughest neighborhood in New York,
2: mm-hmm.
0: alone, on foot,
2: mm-hmm. at night. Wow. And were you armed usually?
0: Well, yeah. You'd be armed, but I mean, if you had to actually show your gun to get out of trouble, it had already gone bad. Yeah. So what you you really, first of all, you had to look like you weren't the target. Yeah. And then actually the interesting thing about tough neighborhoods in New York, you know, bad guys are not idiots. And they pick up on who's a cop real fast. Mm -hmm. And so you don't let the guy you're following see you. But the rest of the bad guys, you know, they see a, a guy looking like me by myself in a neighborhood. Yeah. Like that dude's a cop. He's more trouble than he's worth. Leave him
2: alone. Yeah, got it. Did you ever end up getting into any trouble outside of that? Like, did that any cause any trouble? Did any b- bad guy not know you were a cop? You know, nobody,
0: nobody really descended on me on duty. I had a couple of people mistake me for easy targets off duty a couple of times. Mm-hmm. You know, I once in a park in a really tough neighborhood, I once had a swarm of about eight late teens attack me. But you, you produce a nine millimeter that, that tends to give you breathing room.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, though, it's already gone bad.
0: It, yeah, it had gone bad. Thank God I produced my gun before I even got within arm's reach because they All were right. street smart, too. And when they saw me reach, I mean, they're smart enough to know you're probably reaching for something. Yeah. And when you actually produce a gun, their survival instincts take over. And if they haven't actually touched you yet, they are going to disappear.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And so how long were you on surveillance in New York?
0: You know, between surveillance in Pittsburgh and surveillance in New York, my first six years were almost all surveillance.
2: Got it. Okay. And then what What happened next? What was kind of the progression from there? Well, you know, I, I, de- I decided I want to go inside
0: and, and, Talk to people. Actually, handle the cases myself instead of, do, oh, of doing surveillance on cases for other people. Yeah. And so I shopped around a little bit. I ended up, I ended up actually on the squad, the terror squad. That was my last choice, uh-huh. and it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me because then it put me square in the middle of the investigations that turned into what was the first World Trade Center bombing.
2: Hey, okay, that, that's the timing I was thinking about. That was ninety-three.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fe- February '93, when at the time that the Trade Center was hit, the FBI and New York City Police Department had decided there was no terrorism in America. Uh-huh. They had reassigned all of us to gang crimes. You know, being the mavericks that we were, all of our terrorist cases qualified also as gangs. Uh-huh. We retitled them as gang cases. And then that's the reason why the first World Trade Center bombing was solved so quickly. Yeah, because, you know, we had been on the periphery of these people hadn't got to the heart of what they were doing, but we had been on the periphery of them for several years. And when the piece of evidence came that linked directly to our investigations, we we scooped them up in a hurry.
2: Got it. Got it. Wow. Because I I mean, I mean, I was young. I was born in 86. But I remember that whole thing. And I remember hearing about it when 9-11 happened and about how there was basically another attempt a long time before that.
0: The mastermind of 9-11 is actually literally the uncle of the guy that masterminded 93.
2: Wow. And so how long did you stay on that task force and that team investigating terrorism?
0: I was in New York for 14 years and I I was on a terrorist task force in one form or another for my whole 14 years. Got it. The last year I was there, I had rotated into another position on the task force because they knew I was thinking about going to Quantico full time. Mm-hmm. So they put me in a position to mentor some of the younger guys a little bit more.
2: Got it. Okay. And then when did you make the transition to a like hostage? Ne- did that happen next hostage negotiation or did you have another step before that?
0: Yeah, no, most law enforcement agencies, their hostage negotiators start out doing it as an additional duty. Got it. So the FBI has got a structure pretty much like everybody else does. You know, the negotiators are scattered throughout their ranks. Uh So I I became a negotiator while I was still in New York and still on a terrorist task force and did it as an additional duty. You know, and and it enhanced my interviewing skills. Yeah. And so I was and then I, I by the time I left New York, I was actually in charge of the negotiation team.
2: Okay, got it. And on the terrorist task force, were you so were you actually negotiating with specifically terrorists, or would they call you in for other jobs too? Um, you don't negotiate with terrorists is about the biggest cliche line you hear, but
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and point of fact, you know that cliche line is actually wrong. I figured, we don't make concessions to terrorists. Right. If if you those of those people that look at negotiation as concession, which is another thing about the methodology for the black swan group. Yeah. You know, we don't look at negotiation as concession. You know, hence the title of the book, Never Split the Difference. You know, yeah. we're not going to concede. We're going to come up with a better deal. But the last thing you want to do is concede. And I, and I had really been grounded in those principles as a hostage negotiator. You know, it's not concessions, it's communication.
2: And where did that come from? Was that just from try? I like a better word, trial and error. Was there like some great mentors you had on that side? Where did that come from of understanding that? Because I've read your book too, and you know, there's a lot of brilliance in it versus like the, what you people think of as negotiating and what actually the, you know, it makes sense. If you've been in business, if you've been in negotiating table enough times, you read your book and you're like, oh yeah, even, hopefully you've done some of it intuitively, but it's really the right way to do things.
0: Yeah, I think well, some of it came. From the fact that I was a SWAT guy to begin with, yeah, you know, I I viewed the two as working hand in hand. And then the guy that was in charge of the negotiation program overall for the majority of my time, a guy named Gary Nesner. I learned a lot from Gary. Gary mentored me. You know, at some point in time, he noticed me and you know wanted to develop me. So I, I learned an awful lot from Gary. And Gary was not Gary was about communication, not about concession. Got it. So I learned a lot from Gary Nesner.
2: And so going back, was a lot of your time spent. Talking to terrorists when you had when they needed someone to talk to them, or was it? Or did they pull you out for other jobs too?
0: Yeah, you know that's the way it goes down in the movies. In reality, the vast majority of domestic stuff in the United States is really crisis intervention. Yeah, it's not you know the classic straight out of the movies bargaining. Right. Now I was I was lucky enough I negotiated a bank robbery hostage take. And that's a really rare thing to have happen. Like bank robberies take hostages, but the bad guys make it a point to be gone before the cops show up because they know the cops are coming. It's a bank, after all. And they have bank alarms. So actually, to catch somebody on the inside is a really rare event. It won't, it won't happen one time in the U.S. this year.
2: Right. It.
0: That rare. It doesn't even happen once annually. Yeah. But I was lucky enough. It happened in in Brooklyn when I was when I was in New York and I got over there and we put together a team between the FBI and the NYPD. And I was the second guy on the phone. Mm -hmm. And I got one of the bank robbers out to to surrender to me. But my experience prior to that, you know, I I did a couple of domestic things, a lot of cross training and hostage negotiation among all aspects of law enforcement. So we trained most of the teams in and around the New York City area. The first one that I really got involved in that was an actual negotiation, this school teacher barricaded himself in his, in his uh, was suicidal, barricaded himself in his house in Dobbs Ferry, New York, because there was an allegation that he'd had an inappropriate relationship with a 13-year-old female student. Mm-hmm. Now, he hadn't. He'd been just been mentoring her. They were good friends. But those sorts of allegations will destroy somebody's life. And the allegation was leveled and the guy barricaded himself in the house. And I, uh, you know, we showed up unannounced myself and uh, one of my one of my colleagues, Richie. And because Richie had such a great relationship with the local cops, they let, you know, they let us onto the scene. We walked up to the negotiators and we just became part of their team and supported them.
2: Got it. And so what does that look like? Are you on the phone with him or are you just giving them advice and point, not advice, but your own perspective on how they should handle it?
0: Well, we'll we'll be, uh, depending upon how many negotiators are there, and there were only two negotiators that were there at the time. So the first thing we did was started to give a little bit of play-by-play to command. Like, all right, here's the dynamic that's going on. Here's what I think. And I, I can remember real clearly when we walked in on Dobbs Ferry, both the negotiators had been awake for over 30 hours. And these guys were exhausted. And so I looked at the commander and I said, all right, number one, I am not getting on the phone. Number two, your guys are exhausted and you need more negotiators. I am not getting on the phone. And the third part here is our subject inside is enjoying this conversation so much with your primary negotiator. He's figured out that when he comes out, he no longer gets to talk to this guy. And so your best move is going to be to change negotiators to get him to come out. And I am not getting on the phone. Yeah. And, you know, Commander is sitting there and he, he kind of wonders if that isn't what's going on. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't really know. He thinks his guys are tired, but he doesn't know how effective he is. And it seems like the subject inside... Is really attached to the negotiator but he doesn't really know what to make of that yeah and so he looks at me and he says we don't have any more negotiators how about if we put the backup coach on the phone and you coach him and I'm like all right I ain't getting on the phone but I'm happy to coach your guy directly yeah put the second negotiator on a guy named Chet absolute superstar the disruption in a but in a very positive way sort of woke the guy up on the inside Yep. and 20 minutes later he came out
2: wow so he was just kind of as you said he liked the guy he was just kind of hanging out and kind of exhausted at that point and just sitting around and there was no change in environment so it didn't cause any type of change in thought
0: Right, right. You know, in any negotiation, you can disrupt it and have positive things happen if you disrupt it gently. And it's mostly has to do with tone of voice. And then you allow your effects to settle in.
2: Makes sense. And so how long were you on the hostage negotiation side of the bureau or you went to Quantico, you said?
0: Yeah, you know, I started it as an additional duty actually in in '92, and then in 2000 it became a full-time job. I get, when I get when I got promoted, transferred to Quantico, it was a full-time gig. It was no longer part-time. You know, I went down to the unit. Gary Nesner was running the unit. He had recruited a bunch of guys that he thought a lot of, and I got a chance to work with some really sharp guys and gals, and we breathed. I mean, we lived it. Yep. And then Gary's vision was to give everybody, if you had a certain area you want to specialize in, Gary would let you be in charge or take the lead. And I loved international kidnappings. And I had at the time, I had more terrorism experience than anybody other than Gary. Yep. And so he put me in charge of our international kidnap
2: response. And so in whatever you can share, what kind of stuff did you have to – obviously, it's a little self-explanatory, but what kind of situations did you get into on that? Yeah, well, it was almost
0: all kidnapped for ransom. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, the funny thing about money, even al-Qaeda terrorists that are kidnapping on behalf of their cause, yeah. as soon as people start throwing money at them, they're like, ooh, well, yeah. this money stuff's kind of cool. I kind of, I like having money.
2: Yeah. And weed through ideology too, huh?
0: Yeah. Terrorist groups from South America to the Middle East to Africa, you know, their political causes fall away real fast once somebody starts throwing money at them. Uh-huh. The most of the business, if you will, was Colombia, at the time, you know, former Marxist terrorists mm-hmm. getting a taste of making good money as kidnappers. Yeah. And because of all the things that that country went to, the kidnapping business there was winding down. And then I you know, did some did some kidnappings in the Philippines and a bunch of stuff in Iraq, some in Africa, a little bit in Mexico.
2: And was it always backing up Americans or were you helping with foreigners getting kidnapped as well?
0: Yeah, you know, the only way that the, the Bureau can officially get involved overseas in a kidnapping is if it's an American hostage. Right. Or if there's a demand against the United States government.
2: Got it. Okay. So, okay. Got it. And so how long were you there for? How long did you do that? Yeah. Then I, then I, uh, I stayed,
0: I stayed there for the last seven years of my career, pretty much, especially after I got up to my eyeballs the kidnappings about 10 months in, you know, I didn't have a day off, but I, for seven years, but I loved it. It was, you know, I thought it was a privilege. Uh, I enjoyed doing it and it was a good run. I was happy to have done it. I was, I was happy it was over at the right time.
2: And so I was, was there like just a deadline on your retirement from that always? Or did you have like a point where you're like, okay, this has been enough. It's time to move on. No, I just,
0: external circumstances, the universe conspired to show me the door (laughs) and the universe had, had shown me the door and what, by getting passed over for promotion in New York, Mm -hmm. And that ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me, getting passed over for a promotion. Yeah. And so by the time I get passed over for a promotion after being down at Quantico for seven years, I thought, well, last time I got passed over for a promotion and I took it as a door opening in another direction, it was awesome. Yeah. So I'm I'm going out the door this time. Nice. And I went out the door.
2: And did you, was the next step your book? Like what 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 was your plan going out the door? Did you just kind of leap, you know, kind of what do you got leap of faith there where you just jumped and figured you'd figure it out?
0: Well, uh, you know, I had a little bit of an exit strategy. I don't okay. know if you remember the movie way back when back to school, Rodney Dangerfield, the yeah. comedian sure. goes, goes back to school. <laughs> so I kind of did the Rodney Dangerfield thing and yeah. I went back to school. I decided to get a master's. It was a really unique program still is at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard where um, you get a master's degree in a year. You got to go to school for full time, but based on your life experience, you apply. And if they judge your life experience to be sufficient and you're still interested in public policy, and I was, then you get a shot at this special one year's master's program. So, you know, I bailed to do that. And it was sort of a buffer for me getting out of the government and making my way into the private sector.
2: Got it. And... What, so you went to school and then did you have a plan coming out? Did you know you wanted to start a consultancy or, or did you just, were you figuring it out during that year?
0: Yeah, no, I, well, I had a plan, uh, you know, to quote uh, Dwight Eisenhower, you know, no plan ever survives the first encounter with the battlefield.
2: <laughs> Amen.
0: <laughs> so I, uh, but you got to have a plan still.
2: Yeah, I agree. You so got to be able to adapt. Yeah.
0: So I got out and you know I just figured a bunch of stuff would fall into place. The two things first of all they were they weren't going to fall into place as easily as I thought. And then secondly, as I was finishing up at Harvard, it was the depths of the 2007-2008 recession. Yep. Like I got out when we were hitting the bottom of the recession. And nobody knew it at the time when you're hitting the bottom people think like there's no end in sight. Right. But as it, you know as it turns out if you rotate out of the government if you try to start if where you try to start is at the bottom you actually catch a bit of a break because there's kind of nowhere to go but up yeah you don't you don't know it at the time but you didn't you didn't ride the economy down like everybody else did you know and riding yep. the economy down is some brutal stuff
2: yeah i mean
0: that 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 just kicks people's tails to be doing the same thing and be making less money yep and Although I was panicking as I was leaving Harvard because I was like, you know, none of the stuff that I thought was going to materialize is materializing. But I, you know, I had I had some fallback positions. To think, you know, I'd stayed in the government long enough to have a pension so I had some money coming in. Yep. And I and I went back to where I was I was living on a boat in DC <laughs> at the time and so I went back to my boat. It was relatively inexpensive. Yep, And, you know, then just started, started scratching and clawing
2: and, what were you, uh, and, and learning. What was the original when you came out? Were you just trying to find people that wanted your type of expertise or like, how were you positioning yourself when you came out?
0: Yeah, well, I always, I always thought that there was a natural application. I mean, my brothers and sisters at the program on negotiation at Harvard, had convinced me that it was completely applicable to business. You know, the old uh, philosophy, build a m- better mousetrap in a world be a path to your door is nonsense. Like, you know, hostage negotiation for business, what is now the black swan method, yep. is without question a better mousetrap.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that yep. does not relieve you from marketing or getting out there and pounding the pavement yep. and paying your dues and figuring out ways to show people that. My brand and the president of the company involved really from the very beginning. Yep. I caught a couple of lucky breaks on teaching. I got a chance to turn around, go back to Harvard and teach again. Right. Good friends gave me a real, a real good break. John Richardson pulled me into a class he was teaching. And then in, in DC, then I heard that uh, there was an opening at Georgetown to teach negotiation in the MBA program. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, where have you taught before? And thanks to John, I could say, well, I taught at Harvard. Yeah. Perfect. And they said, have you got a syllabus? And I said, I got a syllabus. And then I got, the, I got the gig at Georgetown, and that's when we really, Brandon and I really got serious about making sure we developed the methodology. And we worked on it for about two or three years yeah. at uh, Georgetown before we felt like we had an entire book pulled together. And that's when you know, I, I dug dug uh, tall Roz up and we, uh, tall helped us birth, never split
2: the difference. Got it. And obviously the book's been a booming success. I don't know many people that don't know it or haven't read it, at least in my circles. Was that how much did you know ahead of time that was going to be such a tipping point? I assume that it has been a tipping point for your business, but maybe unfair assumption. But sounds like that really helped things skyrocket, too. Correct?
0: No. Yeah. Not just a tipping point, but a, a real skyrocketing thing. I will tell you, you know, the first step was kind of find an agent and a writer at the same time. And I had agents tell me no one is ever going to buy this book. Hey, you know, some, sometimes you wonder why you take meetings with people if the only thing they want to do is tell you why your idea is horrible. Yep. And I I can remember talking to a couple agents on a phone. It was a man and a woman in this agency. the The man was more senior. The, the The woman was encouraging. And we had a conference call, and he went on and on about how the world was full of negotiation books. <laughs> the world was not looking for more. And no publisher would ever buy this book. We'd be lucky to get a book deal at all. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm thinking, like, wow, what? I mean, your your whole reason for this meeting, you know, was to destroy somebody else's. I why even take the meeting? Yeah. And then ended up getting introduced to uh, Steve Ross, and Steve Ross had been the agent for another business book by uh, an FBI agent, uh, Joe Navarro's book, What Everybody Is Telling You on, on Body Language. And Steve wasn't all that encouraging initially. He said, I don't know how this is gonna do domestically, but I got a lot of contacts overseas and I know I can sell the heck out of this overseas. We will sell this all over the world because the overseas market has got a big appetite with anything FBI on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, because of Steve, the, the book's in 36 countries. Wow globally, 30 languages, 36 countries. But even Steve didn't anticipate, we put together a, a, a book proposal and he just went to test the water with the publishers and the publishers went nuts. Yeah, I mean, he initially panicked. He, you know, he, he, he called me on the phone. He says, you gotta come to New York for two weeks. And you know, we gotta make a tour of all the publishers. And I said, no, because over the next two weeks I have obligations and we do not break our obligations. You know, once we make a commitment, a commitment is in ink. I got one day and he said, all right, cool. We'll do an auction and you got to come up to New York and I am going to schedule nine hours of meetings for you. You're going to sit in and you're going to talk to all the top publishers and I'm going to work you as hard as anybody could work you for nine hours. I'm cool. I'm in the hard work that works. Yep. And Steve arranged an, au- an auction, and uh, and because we met the Harper Collins people in the, in those nine hours and hit it off with them, we loved them. Hollis Heimbach led the team, and is still my contact there. Nice. And they treat us very well ever since.
2: It's done well. Well, a couple more questions for you. One, what's next? You've built this incredible consultancy. You've literally written the book on negotiating. And what do you kind of? What's the dreams going forward? Do you have a vision of in the next, you know, five, ten years? What it's going to look like? Well, we're still
0: building the company out. I mean, there's more demand than, than we can supply.
2: Yep. And one thing I
0: didn't really anticipate that's been a really big part of our business is, well, two things. Number one, we're focused on high-performance individuals. Mm-hmm. Like I initially thought we would teach companies, and we get hired to, to teach and train companies, and we dropped the seed in the company, and they'd see how smart this stuff was, and they'd grow it themselves internally. Mm-hmm. And that is not the case. The vast majority of companies will not take responsibility for your training. They think it should be yep. on you. They don't have a learning culture. They don't invest in their people. It's one of the reasons why 40% of the fortune 500 is going to be gone in 10 years yep. because they just don't take care of their people. Yep. And then the high performance individuals, like all of our marketing, everything that we do outbound is designed to go after the high performer. Mm-hmm. They don't want to argue with you about a new idea. They love new ideas. Yep. They, they love stuff that makes them uncomfortable. They love to learn. Yep. I mean, they soak this stuff up by, by you know, in like a sponge. So I didn't envision we'd be focused on top performers on individuals, and then we coach a lot. And we, got, we have more demand for coaching than we have coaches because we wanna make sure our people know what they're doing. Yep. So we're gonna to continue to build out. We're gonna coach. We continue to evolve the ideas. We put, you know, a training session at one of our superstars, Derek Gaunt, just finished a course called When Things Go Wrong. Yep. So, you know, putting it out in different formats and tailoring it to how people want to learn is, and evolving the ideas and learning neuroscience, adding everything we're learning about the difference between oxytocin and dopamine and what that does to you and how to trigger it. Yeah, part of a negotiation process. So we're still learning and we're looking to expand a little more overseas, probably starting in... Uh, actually, I was just notified yesterday that we're already planning training for London in June.
2: Wow, awesome. And last question for me, someone else trying to pursue their dream, you took such an unorthodox path for you know a lot of people that end up on your level. And what would you say to someone that's got an idea of what they want to do, what's young young world, they could be, you know, 15, they could be 70. What's kind of that one piece of advice you either wish you heard or are glad you heard to kind of keep you going on the direction you wanted to?
0: You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. Amen. Now the numbers for startups that survive that are started by teams versus started by individuals is like no comparison. Like nine out of 10 sole founder, entrepreneurial startups, nine out of 10 fail. I don't know what the numbers are for teams of three or more, but I know the numbers are much higher. Yep. And then, you know, being part of a team is not just leading a team. One of the biggest things for me was I always led teams and I will always would have described myself as a team player, long as I was in lead. <laughs> and to really be a team player, you, you know, you, what was it? Chris Rock had a routine recently where he says, it's his, you got to learn to play a tambourine. You know, somebody else is a lead guitar. Somebody else might be the lead singer. Sometimes it's your job to play the tambourine. Yeah. You know, that's really good advice. How, How do you get yourself out of the way of your team or, you know, you're the CEO, you can make a decision. Like, no, I can't. I mean, I could, but that'd mean I was shoving stuff down my team's throat. You know, and I, I had a conversation with my director of marketing today, who's my daughter-in-law. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, I, you know, I apologize for leaning into this without talking to you about it first, because I realize we got to get the team around it and you've got your priorities. Yeah. So, you know, being part of a team, what it really means to be a team player, a lot of, nobody will tell you they're not a team player. But what they're really after is for the team to join them versus their willingness to join a team. I have turned down former FBI negotiators explicitly with those words. I've said, you want us to join your team. Yep. And we need you to join ours. And since those aren't the same things, we just it's just not a match.
2: Great advice. And funny enough, stuff I'm going through right now with how to enable my team and step away as the leader and more a part of which is fun. we got a big enough team now that it's it's important to also have those people and have people around you that are better at certain things too. So I think that is very good advice. And Chris, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk.
0: I enjoyed the conversation, man. I appreciate it. Like, can, can I give people a way to, to follow yeah. up if they want to learn more? Yeah, please do. Yeah, the Black Swan method, if you want to be a Black Swan, if you want to learn this method, which has evolved well beyond hostage negotiation. Simplest way is to sign up for a newsletter. It's, it's a free newsletter, but that's not why it's valuable. It's valuable because it's actionable and it's concise. So the easiest way to sign up is a text to sign up function. You send the message Black Swan Method to learn the Black Swan Method. Black Swan Method, three words, not cap sensitive. Text to the number 33777. That's 33777. Black Swan Method, just those three words. Not the Black Swan Method black swan method. You get a text back asking for your email address. The newsletter is a gateway to everything that we have. And we got a lot of free stuff that'll help you on your journey.
2: That's awesome. I'm going to sign up right now too. Really appreciate this, Chris. And I'm sure we will talk soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, man.
1: Of course. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com.